we are gathered together this morning with the people of God, and that gives us much to rejoice about. I pray that joy is filling your heart as you're here, uh, not just sort of kind of here, but fully here. <clears throat> I recognize we come, all of us, with different dispositions, and uh, the Lord uh, doesn't tell us that we have to feel a certain way. He doesn't tell us that we have to be wide awake when we're simply not, that we have to feel well when we don't feel well. But what he does is he invites us by his spirit to have joy in our hearts. And we know that this joy transcends all of our circumstances. So if you don't have that joy this morning as you're here, that focused, delightful desire to be in the presence of God, ask the Lord. Uh, pray to him. As we talked about earlier, he is, he's near and as we sing about, uh, we can approach his throne and find grace, find help in our time of need. And so if you don't have joy this morning, uh, now is a time of need. So pray and ask for the Lord's grace even now that he would give you this joy. If you would, go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 27, verses 1 to 19. That is our passage for this morning, 27, 1 to 19. <clears throat> One of the things that I like most about the book of Exodus is that it is so foundational for our understanding of who God is and what he is doing in history. Uh, what he has done, is doing, and will do. The book of Exodus is just so foundational for us. So many of the biblical themes and doctrines that we really just take for granted, and especially uh, if we have been in church for a long time, if we've grown up in church, a lot of the Bible words just sort of lose their oomph, they lose their substance for us because they just become overly familiar. Familiarity is not intrinsically bad, but familiarity that breeds a kind of uh, just taking the substance out of words, that is not something that we desire. So we ask that the Lord would, would give us uh, fresh eyes to see these great truths. But so many of these themes and doctrines that we do take for granted are rooted right here in the soil of Exodus. And we talked about that too with Genesis. Genesis and Exodus, these two foundational books of the Bible, so much of what we will encounter in the rest of Scripture is found here. The first part of the book of Exodus gave us dramatic scenes of sovereignty, power, faithfulness, and salvation. So many truths about God that just explode with meaning and practicality. The multiplication of the people, the raising up of Moses, the plagues, Pharaoh's heart, or rather God's working in Pharaoh's heart, the Passover, the Exodus, the parting of the sea, food from heaven and water from a rock, all of these things showing those attributes of God, sovereignty, power, faithfulness, and salvation. He is our Savior. Then as we came up to chapter 20, we saw the just and covenant-making God giving his law. And so there we found the Ten Commandments in the book of the covenant. And uh, the primary idea there is that God is just. Uh, God gives good laws. God, the, the, the law of God reflects God's character. And so that's how we're meant to understand the law. It is a reflection of who God is. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. Now, 
we find ourselves in the section of the book of Exodus describing the tabernacle. So we've been moving through these various sections, and now we are focused on the tabernacle, a section full of some of the biggest themes in the Bible. So not boring, not to be dismissed, not to be skimmed over, though there are many little construction details that cause our minds to sort of glaze over. Nonetheless, this is full of some of the great themes of the Bible. The worship of God and His holiness, His majesty, His glory, and His presence. What Christian has not taken such delight in these truths? God's presence. Well, we come to understand the gravity of that, the significance of that, and the rootedness of that, our own experience of God's presence as we come to the tabernacle. And let me say it this way. To have a Christian life that uh, is not built upon these things is to not truly understand uh, the very actions and experiences that we have as Christians. We have to root all of our experiences and all that we know about our own personal Christian lives, we have to root that in the history of salvation as we find it in the Bible. Understanding God's presence demands that we go back here to the tabernacle. <clears throat> and this draws my mind to one of the emphases of our men's retreat, which we just had uh, this past sat not this past Saturday, but the one before that. And in that, the, the first talk I mentioned as, as we were talking about approaching the Bible, one of the things I mentioned is that as we come to the Bible, it is, it is work. Studying the Bible is hard work. If you think that you're going to come to the Bible with ease and comfort and passivity and God's just going to drop a Christian life in your lap and he's just going to drop the kind of character that we find with the fruit of the Spirit in your lap and it's just sort of going to just naturally, passively flow out. That's not what we find in Scripture. We need to work at it. We need to work at understanding God's Word and practicing God's Word and sharing God's Word. And one of the points that I brought up there is that as we are doing this work of studying God's Word, we're laying a foundation and we're building a superstructure for our understanding of the Bible. So passages like the tabernacle, this is my point, passages like the tabernacle help us to build that strong foundation and that superstructure upon which we hang all the things that we are reading later in the Bible. So far, our time discussing the tabernacle has centered on the tent itself. The furniture, structure, coverings, rooms, and dividers within the tabernacle tent. And so let me go ahead and get you guys to put up that slide of the tent itself. And this was the slide that we had last week. Just the tent structure. Since we've been in the tabernacle now for several weeks, this has been our focus. What happens within this tent, or, or really not so much what happens, but really what is present within the tent, the tent itself, and the structure upon which the tent hangs. This has been our focus. 
We've talked about the Ark of the Covenant. You see it there in the rear, in the back. The Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat, the lid with the two cherubim angels on the ends of the lid. We've talked about the table for the bread of the presence with the 12 loaves of bread on top, and you can see them there in the picture. And we've talked about the golden lampstand, which is on the south side across from the table for the bread of the presence. Last week, we looked at the various curtains, coverings, frames, bases, and crossbars. And you might be thinking, wow, if, if you missed last week, wow, I, I hate that I missed that. Uh, but that's what we talked about, the crossbars, the frames, all these, these intricate parts of the structure. And you can see there the four layers that were on top of uh, the structure itself, the, the inner layer, two inner layers, and then two exterior layers of skins protecting the tent from the weather. As we ended last time, our attention was drawn to two curtains in particular. One hanging at the entrance to the tent in front of the holy place. And this is translated in the ESV as a screen. And so you see that there uh, where the, the little high priest is. You see the curtain to the entrance of the holy place or the screen. And the other curtain translated veil in the ESV. The NIV translates both of these as curtain. And there's different words used here for these. It is a curtain. And it was hung between the holy place and the mo most holy place. So you see that uh, one is at the entrance to the whole tent structure. And then you go through into that first room. And then there is a second room behind the second curtain. Between the holy place and the most holy place. And the second veil, the second curtain called the veil had cherubim on it, these angelic beings, the same that we find there on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. The second curtain had the cherubim, and it separated the place of God's presence. So God said that he would come and meet with his people there upon the mercy seat. That was the dwelling place of God. We're meant to understand the whole structure as God's house but we're meant to understand that the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies is like God's throne or the footstool of God's throne. The Holy of Holies functions as God's throne room. The whole thing, God's house, the Holy of Holies is God's throne room. And the curtains there separate the rooms. We referenced last week Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. This is what it says in terms of how this functioned, the spaces, the priests <coughs> go regularly into the first section. So between those two blue curtains, the priests are in there quite a bit, regularly working within the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, where the cherubim are on the curtain, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, one man once a year goes into that inner space and not without taking blood. One man, once a year, with blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat. And then it says this, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And as we think about this veil, that second veil with the cherubim stitched into it, 
We ended last week on this glorious note. And as a Christian, you've come to truly appreciate this. Uh, If you're not a Christian here this morning, what I'm about to read doesn't mean anything to you at this point. We pray that it would come to mean something to you, that you would come to rejoice in what I'm about to read. But for the Christian, uh, this means everything to us. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51 This is the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus dies on the cross. That's what I just read. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that inner veil with those cherubim on it, torn from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were Split. Now, why does that make us rejoice? Why does that mean so much to Christians? Is because what it tells us is that through Christ's death for us on the cross, the, the opening has occurred to God's presence. No longer is there a separation. No longer is there a veil between us and God's presence. But we come boldly into God's throne room at any moment of the day through Christ Jesus. To us as Christians, this is a point of great joy. Christ has made the way to the Father. And this brings us to a point we've made repeatedly, and that is that the tabernacle is entirely Christological. Now, that doesn't mean that every band and loop and hook and pole has Christological significance. As I've said before, some have tried to do that and it could get quite fanciful and speculative and allegorical and go all the way off track. But what we're meant to understand is that the tabernacle structure with many of its details and the structure as a whole points entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that this morning again. We've seen it all along and I'll try to sum up some of that as we go through the details this morning. The title for the sermon today is Outside the Tent. So far we have looked uh, at the tent itself. This morning we are going to go outside the tent. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. By the way, I'll say this, because it is Christological, it helps us more deeply understand Christ. If our desire this morning is to understand the person and work of Christ, there is so much fruitfulness in looking at the tabernacle. So Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 to 19. This is the word of God. Outside the tent. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, 
you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And by the way, let me just pause here for a moment. Uh, God, the, the scene, we can't, we can't forget the scene. The scene is that the Lord is talking to Moses alone on the mountain. Moses is going to then go down the mountain and with the Ten Commandments give this, uh, this instruction. Holding the tablets, he will give this instruction to the people. So now we go to verse 9. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver." And for the breadth of the court, on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court shall be, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. Of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Embroidered with needlework, it shall have pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits. The breadth fifty and the height five cubits. With hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, I want to just point out right now a miracle to everyone. Here's the miracle that we're here reading this and studying this. Let me, let me explain. Where in the world are you going to find... Any people who gather together, stand up, and read an instruction manual from the ancient Near East, and then sit down and pray over that. To read that, to spend time studying that, let me just say, this is my point. My point is, it is a miracle of God that there are people gathered together remotely interested in doing anything with this. Right? It is a testimony of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a testimony of the fact that the Spirit within us is bearing witness that this is the very Word of God. We're here because we want to hear from God. We're not merely studying some ancient Near Eastern manual for building a structure. We're here to know God. And what God tells us is that all Scripture, including this, is God-breathed and profitable, making us fully equipped for every good work. So that's why we're here, and this is really a miracle that we're even doing this. So let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your glory. Lord God, you are sovereign over us this morning, and you are in control of uh, all that goes on here in this service. Lord, how humbling it is uh, to be here and, and to know, God, that you have made us your children and that we come into your presence as your servants. Day and night we live before your face. And, and to be here gathered as individual, born-again, blood-bought, adopted children of God. That we have this joy in our hearts that was not there before. That we have this hope in our hearts. And we have this desire to please you, this yearning, this hunger and thirst for righteousness as Jesus describes it. We see our sin and we mourn. We are poor in spirit. None of these things we are as we ought to be, Father. But these things are a reality nonetheless, and we praise you for your grace. We praise you that you've brought us together here, you've changed us, and you've given us a desire to know you. So we pray, Lord, that we would feed on your word this morning, that we would know you more deeply because we've been here, because we have sat be under your word. We have listened to it, uh, read and explained. And Lord, we have sung your praises and prayed to you all in accordance with your holy word. So God, would you go with us this morning? Would you continue to go with us? Would your spirit guide this preaching and hearing? And Lord, would the rest of this service bring you honor and glory? And would it bring us good as it equips us to live lives that reflect you and that are more and more conform to the likeness of your son. We thank you for all that you have done and are doing in our lives and in our church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move outside the tent, we are given two topics. It's, you know, it's really nice when the sermon outline is easy to determine. So here it is. First, the altar and second, the court. So the altar, verses 1 to 8, and then we get the court verses 9 to 19. I've grouped these together uh, because this is as, the, as it is unfolding. Now, we know we have a wash basin, which is not mentioned, and we also we have the incense altar, which is inside of the holy place. That also was not mentioned. Those are going to be functionally mentioned once we get into the priesthood and all of that. So there's a purpose for mentioning those later. But uh, what we're looking at this morning is what we see, what you would see when you came out of the tent. And we have the altar and the court. So let's look first at the altar. And so what I want to do, as I did last week, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 again. And I want you to visualize it in your own mind. I'm going to show you a picture in a little bit. Now, this is not some, someone didn't snap this picture 3,500 years ago. This is a reconstruction. And all reconstructions are up for a question. I mean, they're not certain. But I'll show you a picture in a moment. That gives a reconstruction. But the first thing I want to do is have you all do the work, the mental work of trying to piece this together in your own mind. And then I'll try to describe it before showing a picture. So here we go. Verses 1 to 8. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. 
You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made." Here we are given a description of a square structure that stood between the entrance to the court, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and the entrance to the tabernacle tent. So as I showed you the tabernacle tent, you have there that first blue, purple, and scarlet colored curtain that you would come to there with the tent. Well, if you move on beyond that, going toward the the entrance to uh, to the entire courtyard structure you would find this altar. The length and breadth are given as five by five cubits or seven and a half feet. So you can imagine how long that is and how wide that is, seven and a half feet long and wide. And the height is three cubits or four and a half feet. And we have a a retaining wall in our backyard that I think is right under four feet. And so you get a, get a sense for, it gave me a sense for about how tall this is. I was telling someone a couple of weeks ago, I was over near the gym and uh, over at Ashley Park, they have this, this open area where they're doing construction and uh, they have these poles and this kind of, kind of fabric up. And so I was out there walking around trying to get a sense for how big the, uh, the tabernacle was. And I was telling someone, if someone drove by, they probably would think I've gone crazy. Uh, if you ever see me doing that, that's what's going on. Uh, but yeah, as you think about the size of this, it would be perfect for, uh, for you know, human priests to carry out the sacrifices. It is an altar or place of sacrifice with little projections or horns coming up from each corner. The structure itself is hollow, made of acacia wood, boards that are then overlaid with bronze. So wood overlaid with a metal, and in this case, bronze. Many have suggested that the center would have been filled up with earth to fill the hollow space and possibly provide a seat for the fire. So the idea is, well, it is hollow. We're told specifically that it's hollow. And so perhaps there was earth placed inside of it so that, you know, dirt and rocks and so forth, so that it would not blow side to side if there was a strong wind or, or so that it would just be stable in general. And also, uh, there's the question of what about when the bronze heats up? What happens to the wood underneath? And so scholars debate all of that. But it's possible that there was this open box-like structure that then earth was put into and rocks and then the fire was kindled in between the boards. It was kindled on top of the earthworks. It has four rings along its sides for fitting two poles. And these poles are likewise made of acacia wood and overlaid with bronze. And as, as with the Ark of the Covenant, these poles would be used to carry this altar. As an altar... It comes with various utensils used in sacrificing animals. So we see them listed here. Verse 3, pots to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. So you, you have to have instruments for dealing with the meat for dealing with the ashes after uh, the, the animal, the sacrificial animals are burned, and then you have to have something to hold the blood that would be used in all of the ceremonies of the sacrificial system. So here we have these various utensils. All of these are made of bronze. 
Finally, the design of the altar includes a grating placed under the ledge halfway down. So at this point, I'll give you a picture. Um, here is, uh, and as I said, <coughs> there are various pictures. If you just go to Google Images and put in the bronze altar, uh, I'm sure you'd see all different kinds of reconstructions. And as I was studying it this week, I you know, saw various different ways of, of depicting this. But uh, what I've decided to do for this portion of Exodus is just to utilize what we have in the ESV study Bible. It's a, a commonly accepted, credible source. Uh, lots of scholarly opinion went into that. And so this is the reconstruction that we have there in the ESV study Bible for the bronze altar. In verse 8, the second part of verse 8 says, as it has been shown you on the mountain so shall it be made. This is a refrain. We've gotten this plenty of times throughout this section. It's just a constant reminder. God does not want Moses to forget. And God does not want the people to forget when Moses conveys the message and when he writes it down. Repeatedly, we are told it must be done exactly as you, Moses, have been shown on the mountain. God has a pattern, and the pattern is pointing to all of reality. It is pointing to all that Christ will do. It is pointing to what will happen after Christ's return. All of this is in view, and God tells Moses it must be made in this specific way. So hopefully that gives you a pretty good idea of what's in view <clears throat> which is my intention as we, go, as we begin each of these, is just so you can get an idea for what we're talking about. So now let's make some observations about this structure. Let's start to kind of take from the details and see what we can get out of that. The first and most obvious is that, is that it is made entirely of bronze. Bronze is everywhere. And in fact, in Chapter 38, verse 30, it is called the bronze altar. That's where we find it being called that in other places as well. It is the bronze altar. So if you will remember when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, I made the comment that gold is everywhere. You have pure gold surrounded by just gold. But gold is everywhere in the holy of holies, in the most holy place. Here, bronze is everywhere. So we've seen uh, the movement from, gold, well, from pure gold to gold to silver, and now we see bronze. And not just a bronze item here or there, which we've seen before, but an entire structure of bronze. And I just want to remind you of what we've talked about already and what we talked about last week. By the way, there's a lot of repetition here, but it is this idea of graded holiness. That as you're moving out from the throne room, you are moving further and further away from that sacred space. You could imagine going into a king's palace. When you come up to the palace, uh, it's going to be magnificent. As you enter the, the palace, it, it will be uh, probably even more magnificent. And as you get closer and closer to the king's quarters, to the king's throne room, the magnificence will just swell and that's what's happening as we talk about the Ark of the Covenant or as we talk about the, the tabernacle. The magnificence swells, the glory, the holiness as we move closer and closer to the throne room of God. Now let me, 
just draw out an implication for us here as we think about the Christian life. Here's one of the dazzling truths of the Christian life. As we think about the tabernacle and we think about how we have access to God's presence and how we are the temples of the living God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in in us, what we're meant to understand is that all of our lives is pure gold. There's no sort of uh, secular space. There's no sacred and secular. As the temples of the living God, every facet of our lives, our private lives, our work life, our church life, how we are with our spouse, every aspect of our lives is golden, as it were. There is no bronze space in the Christian Life. We live always in God's holy presence. God always dwelling within us. What meaning that gives to every area of life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just kind of numb. Maybe a little bored. Maybe a little just discontent with life. Uh, what's, the, what's the point? I just kind of feel like I'm moving through my days Uh, I don't really have a lot of meaning and purpose. Uh, I I hope that something like this just shatters all of that. All of that misconception. All of that folly. How can we, the temples of the living God, in which is pure gold everywhere we see, ever see life that way? How can we ever see the mundane of life as truly mundane? How can we ever see any area of our lives as just mere bronze? All of life is sacred in the presence of the I am. Every moment. Second, notice these horns, these little projections. What's that about? Well, there's various ways that these have been described or the significance of them have been described. Let me give you just a few uh, thoughts here. Psalm 118 verse 27 may suggest that such horns were practical, used to stabilize sacrifices so that they're not tilting, falling off the edges of the altar structure. And uh, we get a, a, a sense for that or a possible support for that in Psalm 118 verse 27 where it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And uh, scholars debate whether this was the case. Some have argued, well, no, that's not going to hold anything. They're just going to slip right off the top. It's not like curved or anything like that. So it's not really going to hold any kind of uh, ties. Uh, But some have have pointed to this verse and said "This this is likely the practical function. Horns themselves are a symbol of power or strength in the Bible. And you get this all throughout Scripture. I'll give you one reference from, also from the Psalms, Psalm 89, 19, uh, 17. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. So this imagery of the horn of an animal, think of a bull or an ox, the, the horn being a picture of power, a picture of strength. Horns represented a place of refuge, at least practically. We find this uh, in some places in the Old Testament. So 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 51, we read this. Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, 
he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And so at least for some, it was thought of as a place where you could go and just sort of take hold of something there on the altar, uh, and it would be a place of refuge from danger. It would be a place where you would not be harmed. The horns also provided an obvious and pronounced place to put the sacrificial blood. So you think about the, if there were no horns, there, uh, the, the blood would not be as obvious as, as it is placed onto the altar. We know some of it is placed down below, but the, what I'm saying is that the horns, as they are elevated above the altar, uh, offer a place for putting the blood that is more obvious. So we find this in chapter 29 of Exodus, verses 11 to 12. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. So that anyone who's looking at this structure is going to see those projections. It's going to be where your your eyes go first. And that's where the blood is going to be placed. All of this leads to one overarching observation. So a lot of details. Now I want to give you the big, big, big picture. And here it is. This is a place of death. Uh, Now maybe that just, you know that. But it's something that is not obvious. You're not really, uh, you know it and you push it to the side. But uh, it is flashing before us. This is a place of death. Blood. Ashes, sacrifice. This is a place of death. And Exodus chapter 30, verse 28, calls it the altar of burnt offering. So it is, it is called the bronze altar. It's defined by what it's made of. It's also called the altar of burnt offering. It's defined by what happens there on it. As sacrificial victims are offered up to the Lord, sacrificial animal victims offered up to the Lord. There is a sense sense in which this tabernacle structure, and specifically this altar upon which animals were sacrificed, there is a sense in which this makes us a little uncomfortable. All these animals, all this death, now, this is strange and weird to us in, in a sense, especially today looking back on it. And if you think about it, this was a very bloody place. Uh, it's easy to miss that. It's not so pristine and clean. It would, have, it would have smelled like blood. And blood has such a d- distinct smell. It was a bloody place. We say to ourselves... Something is not quite right here. This is strange. This is weird. And it brings us all the way back to Eden. Back to sin and its consequences. The Lord told Adam in the garden as Adam is is living and moving among the animals. He's there with the other creatures. He's naming these animals. There is no enmity between him and any beast or slithering thing or bird of the heavens. 
But he tells Adam, he says, in the day you disobey me, that's what the tree's about, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not some magical fruit. In the day that you disobey me, the one command I've given you, you will die. And ever since that time, beginning with the, the skins that God used to put over Adam and Eve, the covering of, of skins of those earliest sacrificial victims, about which we're, we're not told anything except for the fruit of it, the skins placed on Adam and Eve as a covering. Ever since that time, the consequences for sin is death. Period. And listen, no exceptions. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me say this to us. The tabernacle and its placement tells us that there is no approach to God without sacrifice. Do you see that? You come into the entrance. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you come into the entrance and bam, your eyes are met immediately with this structure this place, this bloody place, this fiery place, this place upon which animals are sacrificed as substitutionary sacrifices. Keep that in mind. The animals are sacrificed so that God does not wipe out the sinners. The animals aren't sinners. What bull has sinned? What goat has sinned? They're not made in the image of God. They do not willfully disobey God. They do not fail to give honor and thanks to their creator. These animals have not sinned. We have sinned. The Israelites sinned. And God allowed the animals to be substitutionary sacrifices. Penal substitutionary sacrifices. Punishment bearing substitutes. In the place of the people. Without this bronze altar, every single Israelite would have perished. Do you hear that? Without this altar and the sacrifices, the dying, the dying that took place upon this altar, every Israelite, including Moses, would have perished. But of course, the blood of animals does nothing. What's the sacrifice of all these animals really about? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 to 14 tells us, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. How's the blood of a bull going to take away anybody's sins? How's a goat going to take away sins? sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and by the way, that single sacrifice for sins goes backwards and forwards. The animals were pointers to Christ. They were in the stead of Christ until his coming. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Where is the altar? Golgotha. Calvary. Where is the altar? A Roman cross. It is upon that cross that the sacrificial lamb of God died to take away the sins of God's people past, present, and future. Any person who will ever live, who comes to God, who knows God, who truly knows God, will come only through the sacrifice of Christ. That's it. That's the only way. You will never get to heaven through religion. You will never get to heaven through your good deeds. You will never get to heaven by patting yourself on the back thinking, I was nice to the person at the restaurant. Okay? What's in our hearts? A lack of honoring of God. An inherent selfishness. A lack of gratitude to God. A worshiping of everything but God. That is deep in all of our hearts no matter how nice we may be. And that sin must be paid for with death. Either our eternal death in hell or the death of the Savior on the cross. That's it. And that is the reason this cosmic nature of Christ coming and sacrifice. That is the reason why John the Baptist said as he saw Jesus approaching his baptism, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. He restores humanity and he's sacrificed for all of our sins. I don't think we really understand how much we will and will want to praise Jesus eternally in heaven. If you've ever had the thought that you might get bored in heaven, that's insane. That's insane because it it means that we really don't get How magnificent, how loving, how gracious, how glorious, awe-inspiring, soul-reviving and rejoicing it is that the Father gave his only Son and the only Son willingly sacrificed himself to save us from eternal hell. We're not going to be bored in heaven. We will praise God through Christ, for Christ, for eternity. So we see the altar. Now we come to the court, verses 9 to 19. So as we did before, try to put this together in your minds. I'll read it. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side, its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings, a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, and with, with their three pillars and three bases. 
On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Here we are given a description of a border or an enclosure. So if you're thinking, okay, what, what, what did we just read? This is an enclosure. It is a, a border. The tent is not just sitting in the open. It's not just out there in, in the middle of nowhere. You just sort of walk up to this tent. It is enclosed. And it is within this enclosure that the bronze altar is placed. There are four sides to this rectangular enclosure. The north and south sides are 100 cubits or 150 feet long. And the sides of the west and east are 50 cubits or 75 feet. Each side is lined with bronze pillars and bases to hold up hangings of fine twined linen. And everything is attached with silver hooks and fillets or bands. The eastern side has as its center, at its center, a curtain. And this is a gate. It's a curtain gate, which is 20 cubits or 30 feet long or wide. Right there as you walk up, there would be this 30 feet gate, curtain gate. This screen is just like the one at the tabernacle, uh, at the entrance to the tent, tabernacle. It is of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. But there are no cherubim here. So just as the entrance to uh, the tabernacle itself, the entrance to the tent, uh, that screen does not have the cherubim on it. The, the one at the entrance to the court doesn't as, as well. Only the entrance to the Holy of Holies has the cherubim. It has four pillars with four bases. At the end of this description, we are told that all utensils and pegs are made of bronze. So let me go ahead and give you a picture of it. And this is going back to the very first picture that we had of the, the whole structure with the court. So the court is basically the enclosed area that surrounds the tabernacle tent. This is the court. And that's it. And as I've said before, there is a majestic holiness to this. As I was reminded this week, if you can imagine uh, a priest, a high, the, the, any priest going into that first part, the light from the lamps would be shining all over these, these curtains with cherubim on them, blue and purple and scarlet. You would have gold everywhere. It would have been majestic. It would have been beautiful. But when you look at it here, it really is quite lowly. And it reminds us of the incarnation of Christ and his majestic lowliness. So let me give some observations as we finish up this morning on this court. So instead of gold and silver, here we have silver and bronze. So earlier on in the tent, 
you had a gold-silver combination, and then you had bronze bases as you were coming out into the courtyard. Well, here you have a silver-bronze combination, so you're clearly moving along the spectrum. Once again, we're just meant to make this observation. We are moving away from the holiest place. We're moving away from the throne room of God. This is graded holiness. Also, notice the fine-twined linen. This fine-twined linen sets it apart as a holy place, and the height of the curtains at seven and a half feet shielded it, but not entirely. Now, this is interesting. If you th- as you think about the height of these curtains on the outside, they're tall enough to where you're not just sort of hanging out, you know, kids throwing stuff over, and you're just looking over, seeing everything that's going on. They are tall enough to shield what's going on to some degree, but they are short enough to show what is happening on the inside. And really, that's what the tabernacle as a whole tells us. It gives us access, to, it gave the Israelites access to God, but with much separation. So it both shields and shows at seven and a half feet. The blue and purple and scarlet screen points all the way to the Holy of Holies. It says, I am approaching the Lord. So as you walk into the entrance of this court, you're seeing this blue and purple and scarlet curtain, and it's pointing you all the way to the tent. And that, in turn, is pointing you towards the tent in front of the Holy of Holies. It is telling the worshiper with their sacrifices there, going to the priest to have those animals slaughtered and burn up on the altar. It's telling the person, I am approaching the Lord. God is holy, and he invites me to come. At the end of the day, though, what we have here is a barrier. As we think about the court, we have a barrier And it reminds us of Exodus 19 when God told the people to stay back from the mountain. It says this, and you shall set limits for the people. This is Exodus 19, verses 12 to 13. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. The mountain was off limits. And there was a barrier there built. Once again, here with the tabernacle, the court curtains and gate function as a barrier. Of course, the people can go through, but they go through to sacrifice to the Lord. They go through to offer their substitutes to the Lord. For their own sin. You know, as we close this morning, I want to point out one great truth as we see this court. There is here one way of approach. There's only one way in. Uh, You'll notice that there are no other doors. There are no other curtains that can be lifted up, pushed to the side, by which you can enter into this structure. You can't go through the south side or the north side or the west end. You can't go over to the side of the east end on the left or the right. There's one way in, one entrance through this 
barrier. There is one way to atonement and one way to God's presence. And of course, that brings us to John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to be forgiven of sins. There is one way to know God. There is one way to be in God's presence, to have a relationship with him. And it is only through Jesus Christ. I am the way. The world around us will continue to say, that is bigotry, that is arrogance. Christians press on. There's one way. There's always been only one way. There was one way for the Hebrews. There was one way for the Christians in the Greco-Roman world where they looked at the Christians and said, oh, you, you just think that there's this one God and you worship a, a crucified man, a criminal. Well, look at all these gods we have. Our world is no different. Many, many ways, many, many gods. We say one God and one way to that God. And that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not an incarnate angel, not a mere creature, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Emmanuel. He is the propitiation. He is the bread of life. He's the light of the world. His flesh is the veil. He is the Lamb of God, the one sacrificial offering, and He is the way. Apart from Him, there is no hope. Apart from Him, there is no forgiveness. Every person who rejects Christ, every person who dies without Christ, dies in His or her sins. And so we rejoice this morning that God has given us his son, that we have the way, and we approach this God with reverent joy. Let's pray. Father, we exalt your holy name. We bow before you in your majesty. We thank you for the glories of your son. God, we praise you for all the ways that this tabernacle points to Christ all the little pointers, all the little arrows, all the little pictures and types pointing to this one glorious God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Lord, we pray that our hearts would cling to Christ, that we would love Jesus. And as he says from his own mouth that we would love him by keeping his commands. That we would do what he has told us to do. As he says, how do you call me Lord and you do not do what I say? Would we truly take hold of Jesus as our Savior and our Lord? Would we trust him? Would we submit to him? Would we bow to him? Would we have him as our God and no other? We pray. Father, that you would continue to use this time in the tabernacle to heighten our understanding of your holiness and what it means to worship you. And Lord, above all, that we would see the glories of our Savior. 
And we pray all this in his precious name.